welcome back. In Startup Sparks and Serendipity, Mike and I talked to Simi Jahic, which is the lead sales engineer at Clary, which is a big scale-up uh, from the US. Uh, he's working in Europe to build up the European team, to build up the European business. Um, and we talked about several interesting topics, um, leading with the topic of sales processes in in the United States versus sales processes in Europe and what processes also the European team of Clary is adopting based on the experience in, in the States. Um, but also we go a bit more into the different implementations or different sales processes that are happening just in general beyond Clary, but also in general from his experience working in different companies, large companies, but also now smaller companies and the differences he has seen, especially in, in sales. Uh, and then he also published uh, different blog articles on, on his on his homepage. Uh, one of them was on how to pick a startup to work for. And we thought this might be very interesting to our listeners because a lot of people are interested in startups and working for startups. But the question always arises of how do you actually filter them and how do you, f how do you find the startups that you actually want to work for and that fit to you personally. So he has got some great nuggets there. Um, and lastly, we go a bit more onto um, more or less outlooking into 2021 um, and uh, we just had a good discussion uh, so thanks Demir thanks everyone for listening hope you will enjoy it and uh, talk to you soon Welcome back to Startups, Sparks, and Serendipity. It's uh, Max here, Mike is here as well, and we have another special guest. Uh, Samir is on the show, um, building um, more or less the, the, the Clary power within Europe, um, a big scale up from the US. Um, so super happy to have you here, Samir. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Max and Mike. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you on. Um, maybe we, we kick off because of course, um, the, the, the listeners might know you, might not know you. So maybe it's good to uh, give some first introduction on what you do, what you have been doing, and also uh, what you do at Clary, of course, and how that relates to Clary. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, Samir in a nutshell, I'm originally from Switzerland with roots in the Balkan, as you can hear from the name, probably. I studied in Switzerland, was in consulting a while, then moved to London, worked at Salesforce. And after a stint at big companies and you know studying, I was looking for the next big adventure, which is now at Clary. And we are building the European expansion of Clary. It's a seven, soon eight-year-old startup working out of uh, Silicon Valley, expanded across the US. And now we're a team here in London. And we are building a global market. We're selling into Germany, Austria, Italy, Sweden, you name it. And I'm the lead sales engineer there, leveraging my knowledge from you know consulting, having worked at Salesforce. I've always been in these sort of go-to-market um, sales engineering type roles. So what is it that Clary is actually doing for everyone who doesn't know? Yeah, good question. I think if you are in sales or sales operations, regardless of the great system that you might have in place, you will revert to spreadsheets, to forecast, to understand what your reps are doing. You will run reports manually. It's a pain we've seen constantly. And it's this big uh, CRM that we all know that Salesforce is that is addressing that to some extent, but just not sufficiently anymore. It's 20 years old and Clary has emerged as a, as a new player in that space, making the revenue operations, as it's called, much more connected, efficient, and predictable, getting rid of spreadsheets, giving sales leaders the insight they need to understand how are their sales going, what are sales reps doing, and what can they do to improve that to build the revenue predictability in the business. So what you're telling me is that people in sales can now go away from Excel and Google Sheets and use something that actually is specifically designed for that? Is that roughly how I can understand it? Yes, exactly. It's designed for them, really purpose-built, because I'm sure some of the listeners have seen and used other tools and they are just not purpose-built for sales reps and sales leaders. Yeah, you should have built that a couple of years ago when I was still well, doing like lots of sales work. So uh, you're a bit late, bit late for me, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think enough people out there doing sales. Okay, that's very interesting. 
And then you said you are the lead sales engineer. For everyone who doesn't really know what that is, can you explain how sales and engineering basically comes together? Yeah, exactly. I think you know, sales engineering is a term that you see a lot in you know B2B software as a service companies as, as a role. It, it's also known as pre-sales engineer, pre-sales consultant, solutions engineer. These are all terms you will hear around the function. Essentially, I'm managing the entire technical backbone of the sales cycle together with the sales rep. So whenever somebody is selling a piece of software where you require more than just um, high-level information you require, a security review, you need to know if it's a fit with your current landscape of you know, tools they already have. You bring in somebody who has the technical chops to understand, will this work for customer X? And can verify that, can demo it, can talk to you know, all the IT stakeholders, and also drive the product vision forward for, for customers. So working close with product internally, marketing and positioning internally, on the customer side, you always work with your stakeholders across the board. And that's sort of what a sales engineer does. And it varies a lot from company to company of what they make of the role as well. It can be very technical. It can also be very business focused. I find myself to be more of a business focused sales engineer, if you want. It's interesting that you mentioned that, I mean, there's a lot of interrelation happening between, let's say, the more technical teams also covering product. Uh, and of course, potentially then also below that, of, of course, there's the engineering part that, that works very closely with, with, with the product team. And then you have more or less the sales team, which is more customer facing. And of course, there's different functions related to sales, being sales ops and sales analytics and, and mm -hmm. the different functions that work towards the sales team itself as well. Also from your experience, right? Oftentimes in startups, there's um, different questions on how product and sales can work together more efficiently um, and what have you learned um, working with customers but also internally at Clary bridging the gap between let's say a functional technical team and a customer facing team and how to bring more or less the both interests together in the most common and, and most efficient way possible yeah there is so many things around that to unpack I think it's it's amazing I think when you're in a company that sells a b2b SaaS you absolutely have to work with your product managers, especially in a startup, right? Because you're building something new in a new market even, which is next level even. So that's what we're doing here in, in the UK and into London and to the rest of Europe. And you have to just listen to the feedback of customers and feed that back. And nobody's better suited for that than the sales engineer because I'm directly in the sales cycle talking directly to the customers throughout and I see if we win, we win for the reasons that I share and we should do more of what works. And if we lose, I feed that back as well. And I talk directly to the PMs for the different products that Clary has or the VP of products, if it's a broader theme. And it's crucial that you have somebody like that in the company. These are often the sales engineers that kind of help bridge the gap. Because if you have this slightly more technical background, you know what it takes from a product perspective, you know what is possible from a sort of configuration standpoint or even development standpoint, but you also know exactly what the field has and how that translates. And you kind of can see that, you know, an engineer who's not talking to the field probably all the time or a PM doesn't have that necessarily, but also the sales rep doesn't know, well, what is the effort in having a new module or having a new chart in your tool? They might just think it's super easy, but I think for people that are in product development, they know it's not. And I think that's where the sales engineer is really valuable to figure out what is feasible, what is not, how could this impact roadmap? And that is quite powerful, I think, in the role. Very interesting. Um, I mean, one, one follow-up question to that, which of course is related to you seeing a lot of sales reps, but you also seeing how sales can work very successfully on um, your relations with your customers. Uh, we, we, of course, have a lot of people in the community that work in startups or are actually building startups. And uh, I think it's no secret that, of course, product is one part, but distribution and sales is the other part that is somehow a lot of times under missed, especially, I think, in European uh, um, communities where the distribution part um, is maybe something that the U.S. people can do much, much better from an external perspective. What do you see also now with Clary being a U.S. company and transferring into the European market? What kind of sales tips and tricks have you seen that were more or less converted also from the U.S., but that you have also built up internally that would help other founders or people in sales um, actually convert their prospects faster into, into customers and, and long-term relationships with the customer? 
Yeah, there's again so much to unpack. Well, it's a fantastic question. I was, you know, being a Swiss sort of sort of Swiss raised uh, person with Balkan sort of warmth, if you want, I kind of see that sort of even in the Swiss culture, oftentimes that difference. And having gone to London, it's a very different business environment as well. And now working with the US company, it's very interesting, I think, to see what the real differences are in the sales profession, if you want. There's the one thing that everybody in you know, Germany and Austria and Switzerland will say, oh, you know, American people are showmen, showwomen. They kind of know how to present. That's just amazing how they do things. And you see it on TV. And I think everybody knows that sort of presentation skills are not, um, you know, on par with what you see in the US and Europe. If you get like a spinoff from ETH in Zurich, you will see that presentation skills are maybe not the same as you see in the US. And that's one thing we can learn. I think that's one thing we know. So that's like a known um no known thing where, where you can work on. I think the other thing is what I've learned at, at Salesforce in London. So I was at Salesforce in London. It's a big company by now, so you don't have much exposure to US, but there were many people who moved from the US to Salesforce in London. And it's the same at Clary. And what the, people, what the people from America brought was something you don't necessarily see, but, what, but you experience it once you're in the sales cycle with them. There is a rigor and an execution around selling in the US, like I've not seen anywhere in, in Europe. And even we talk now, because we are selling a sales software, right? So I'm talking a lot of sales teams in Germany, Austria, uh, you know, Spain, wherever the case might be. And it's just different worlds. The sales rigor, you know, managing your pipeline, what's the next steps? When are you meeting them? Have you discussed pricing? Like there's a methodology, there is rigor, there is drive. And that is something I don't see so much in the European sales teams, and they're learning a lot from that, I think. And I've, I've seen it with the people from the US in London, and I've seen it even more now when I talk to startups. And it's, I think, what makes them in the US really successful when they're scaling companies, the, the, the rigor and the discipline around the sales process and not just the presentation skills. Whereas I think in Europe, the, the impression is, you know, build it and they will come which of course I think everybody's listening and build the product knows they're not coming unless you do something for it. Um, so yeah, that's, I think a few points. I'm not sure if you find that interesting, but I thought that second piece that I didn't know about before the process rigor is, is crucial that I've learned and seen now. Yeah. Process is so important. And uh, I've, I've actually also worked at a couple of, or actually two bigger U S companies and saw them, kind of launching or relaunching the European operations. Uh, I worked, I did an internship at Uber back in the day when they were relaunching the Berlin market and then worked at Stripe for some time. And it wasn't as early as it was with you. So they have been in Europe for a bit before I joined, but we were launching the Eastern European market while I was there and still obviously saturating the other European countries. And what I found so interesting is that there are these proven processes that you get from the US that really, really work well, right? As you just said, they know how to build sales processes. They are very, very good at that. However, like what I noticed is that there are just some things that just don't work in specific countries in Europe and that you have to change. Sometimes it's regulatory changes, like from the outside to the product, but sometimes it's also in terms of how you present things or in terms of culture. So are you, like, that was a very long preamble to say, are you seeing any kind of cultural differences that you have to teach to the people from the US so that you can't do things the same in Europe or is it different in your product? I think I agree with you that it is different and very different depending on which country in Europe or depend to which like what company in which country you talk to. And I think there's a few examples that we are teaching this back to the US or explaining it back to the US because a lot of the operation, let's say the end user training, for instance, runs from the US, um, some of the implementation as well. And you know, the sales leadership, a lot of it is in the US too. Absolutely. I find huge differences just in how people treat you, treat each other's. I mean, you know, you're from Germany, so you know that kind of the directness of a German, especially from Hamburg or Berlin, can you know, throw off many people from many backgrounds. And it's just important to understand that that is the case. 
you might you might assess a sales cycle very differently if you're an US observer and you listen to a recording of a call, maybe you think, oh, that went really terribly. And the German rep might tell you, well, actually, but pretty well, yeah, we went back and forth, we fought a bit about points. So I think there is something you need to teach the US around, you know, how you do the sales process and then the sales approach. I think there's also um, that kind of directness that lends itself to progressing the sales cycle kind of more clearly. And there's fewer surprises. If you're through, you're really through and there's no final, you know, 11th hour change and they went for the other vendor. I think that doesn't happen. If you're through, you're through, you earned it, you, 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 you kind of won the deal. And your product wise, I think so that was good the sales process, but you also asked about product. And product-wise too, I think with Clary, what we do is you know, we help sales leaders understand how are reps spending time? Are they meeting the customers? Have they heard from them in the last two or three weeks? And we leverage you know, data for that in the CRM, but also an email and calendar. And as soon as you do that, you're like, oh, GDPR, or you know, how about data privacy and, and all these kind of questions. And it's just a mindset shift. And it was interesting for us to learn um, how our configuration capabilities are really useful and being used much more here in Europe than in the US. Because in the US, it's, you know, you work for a company, they are they know everything. There's no expectation of privacy. Whereas in Europe, there is a very big expectation of privacy, especially in German-speaking countries. And working on that and kind of getting us to the next level of configuration capabilities, what can you show, what can you not show, what data will you use, what data will you not use, has been great, right? And it just shows that the focus is a bit different. And, and you teach this back and it's like, well, just capture everything. And I said, well, no, we need to configure it. And what are the configuration capabilities? And, and I think that feeds back into product. And we're, we're, selling, we're selling a lot to startups at the moment, um, sort of series B and onwards with a few hundred people, maybe 20, 30 sales reps. And this will be even more important once you go into the, you know, the big companies like, you know, the BMWs and the, uh, you know, these kinds of companies with thousands of people in deep industry uh, areas. That's interesting because I think what you mentioned is there also these, like depending on the stage and the layer of where the company is at, you have kind of different product requirements that are more or less needed for, of course, different stages. When you talk to Series B startups, they might have different configuration um, functionalities in mind than maybe a automotive uh, in in Munich, right? I mean, that's like, uh, I think that the, the different layers also play play a big role in the relation between sales, the customer conversations and the actual product development and the product prioritization on the other side. Um, one thing that I think is interesting, which you mentioned, I, I also hear that a lot of startups, of course, think about their ideal target persona, especially when not just they start out, but also when they grow up, uh, it's still a big question of what's the ideal persona? How do we target them? What are the methodologies? Um, you now chose, especially, or not chose, but you apparently uh, can sell quite well now in Europe to Series B customers um, and upwards, uh, startups upwards. And the question is, what do startups need to think about when they sell to bigger and startups slash scale-ups in order to be successful there? What have you seen that make you more or less reduce the sales cycle, but also find the right people to talk to when selling to, um, to startups in that size? Because of that, that's very different to selling to startups that might be 20, 30 people, right? We're talking about several yeah. hundreds that are growing fast and, and moving towards a certain direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, Coincidentally, truly coincidentally, just today, we, we published a blog post that I did a recording of what it takes for the road to IPO for a company and how Clary supports at the various stages of that. And maybe something for the show notes. Nice, yeah, absolutely. Um, but we were looking, when, when we talked to companies and the way that Clary works, you know, sales operations, like truly essential as you kind of, you've got some product market fit, you kind of see stage, you build something that kind of works and you're kind of selling it, it's great. You might hire the first few reps, to start selling it for you. So it's not founder-led sales anymore. Still so kind of seed, maybe series A. But then at some point you put in a CRM, you add a bunch of software and you kind of want to scale and it starts breaking. You can't just manage it with Excel anymore. You need some tools, but they're not amazing as well. And that's where Clary comes in at like, you know, 20 reps plus, let's say. And then at the beginning, you help them with, you know, onboarding because probably they just got series B funding, you know, 50, 100 million, no, let's say 50 million, kind of decent round. And they're hiring a ton of reps. So it's all about onboarding. When you think about sales and sales activity, it's 
what are you doing? Are you meeting people? Are you yielding kind of revenue by number of meetings? Or do you have to meet the customer three times more often to explain to them the value prop? And these are things that Clary helps with in the earlier stages. Then we go a bit bigger, like Series C and D. There's a few companies we talk to now, which for them, they got this figured out. They got good operations. They build it out with Clary or, you know, have other ways of doing it. But then it's about forecasting consistently a, a, a good number and hitting the target as they are sharing with the board and as they plan to share with public markets. Because you want to get the volatility out of the way as you're growing. And that is something that Clary helps with as well, because you inspect the deals, the pipeline, you forecast more accurately because your whole sales operations are in a better shape. So as you're on this evolution as a company, that's where Clary has different capabilities that help you at the different stages in the right way. But it's a crucial at the beginning. I think after sort of series A, you've got pro market fit, you've got a few people doing stuff, and then you get a series B, bigger check. First thing you do, okay, we need a good tool stack that's ready to scale. We need people that can build in processes. And that's where something like Cloud becomes really relevant. Really interesting. Um, no, thanks for sharing that. Um, especially, you know, also uh, how the, the company transitions. I mean, one thing that that I think I wanted to touch upon um, is like the, 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 the most important things that you have seen coming from the US to 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 Europe, especially when you're you're faster growing. I mean you have customers like Zoom and others, which also fast growing, of course, which you need to adapt to from a software provider perspective, of course. Yeah. And and the question is kind of I mean we talked about the transition from US people coming to Europe and 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 building up the right sales team within the European countries. What else have you seen um, maybe more organizationally, strategically, that helped you to actually grow fast? Because opening up a new market is always difficult, no matter what your company is and no matter how great you're growing, it's always difficult to open up new markets. I know all your investors, I think, are also based in in, in, in the US. Of course, they have some base in, uh, in, in Europe, like Sequoia and others. But how, from a strategic organizational perspective, what have you seen work quite well? And what were maybe things that you adapted and improved during the process that maybe didn't work so well at the beginning where you could give some 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 info about that? Yeah, I think this is quite interesting. And it's it's on one hand, I can talk about the Clary side, but also what is interesting is the customers we talk to, they're also often startups. So there's interesting topics around that. Right. Yeah. And I think on the Clary side, what is interesting, kind of as you're as you're building the market, we're so early. We're five people in Europe. We're doubling next year probably, and and you know double, but we're, it's ten people, so we're not even a football team yet. And and the exciting thing is, we can try out new things because the US is quite established. If you're on the West Coast, it's super established, as you said. You no, know, we're selling to to Okta and Zoom and these kind of companies, and that helps us to try out things, but also there's challenges with trying things out because you fail inevitably. And, and I think to, to do that in the first year now that we've done as a full team is experiment and keep what works and discard what doesn't work. One example is there's a company called Sandoso and you can send like stuff to people. Like you send, if, if you know a prospect like skiing, you send them ski goggles and you say, great visibility on the slopes, great visibility in your pipeline, something like that, I don't know. And that is super great. I mean, you can already imagine how somebody, yeah, exactly. Super smart. Exactly. It resonated amazingly well in in the U S whereas when we try similar things in Europe, it almost feels like an invasion of privacy. If somebody imagine on, you know, in Munich on his desk, gets something like, how did you find out about that? Somebody's stalking me, stay away. And it's just the cultural appropriateness of these things is not, not the same. So we learned that some things don't work. I, I literally, I literally had that happen oh, yeah? like like a week ago or so. Where yeah, like I, uh, an American friend and I, we were thinking about how we can like give back to some people who've helped us, and uh, then we we send presents to people, and then I said let's not send it to the German dude because he's probably like confused when we just sent it like something to his to his address. And it was like no no worries I know him very well because like he introduced like us so it, it wasn't me the other German. And then everyone was super hyped about the present. And the first thing I got from the German dude was wait like how did you find out my address like wh- <laughs> why why did you send that to my home address? But he, he was he was so pleased that he got it and wasn't pissed or anything. But he was way more confused than anyone else. So just wanted to like throw that quick interlude in here. I didn't want to interrupt. 
Yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly it. So you kind of think about, okay, what works in the US doesn't necessarily work in Europe. And again, Europe is a very differentiated market as well. So there's stuff that might work in the UK, but not in Sweden. Um, so there were some of these things, but we just experimented with lots of things. We tried to do pre-COVID, so sort of February, March events, go to um, you know the usual events that you kind of have in the SaaS space. But then later on, we just found that running small, intimate events through webinars with a very targeted audience helps massively. So we had a board member talk to CROs specifically around scaling a company doing an IPO. This was with one board member that actually has done an IPO. So that's, of course, hugely valuable for CROs to find out. We did one session, which was very focused on the actual day-to-day sales operations. And they're like, oh, this is super relevant for me. And the thing is, in those events, we had, at most, at the end, a 30-second pitch for what Clary is and what we do. And we just hope in, intrinsically that there is value and that we share this thought leadership that helps kind of create a good momentum for us on the deal. And there's just a lot of experimentation as well. I mean, you know, you have to be where your customers are. Our customers are startups a lot, like Series B plus, and then tech companies, even the big ones. So you have to be all over, you know, your crunch base, your tech crunch, LinkedIn. I guess if you're selling, I know, to industrial, you have to be in different places. And I think just be where your customers are. That That's crucial and, and connect with them as much as you can. Yeah, I actually hear a lot of things that were done at Stripe as well in the sales org. So especially these like really targeted events, they were always very nice because the idea behind them was to provide as much value as possible, right? And not necessarily to sell the product, but just like put the name at the end or like sometimes we didn't even like specifically mention what Stripe was doing. Like it was just sponsored by Stripe or hosted by Stripe or whatever. Mm. And that was really cool just to build the like ecosystem around it and the relationships. So definitely seconding that. Let's let's switch gears for a little bit, uh, a bit away from sales and a bit away from uh, revenue operations and Clary. And you, you published a blog post, uh, I don't know when, like I think a couple of months ago about how to find the right startup to join. And I think that is something that is very interesting to many of our listeners because we have a lot of founders who listen to this, but then also we have many people who Mm -hmm. are interested in actually joining startups. Some of them who are still in college, some of them who are working in other companies, actually a couple of consultants uh, who are listening to this. So uh, that's straight, straight down your alley. And Let's, let's maybe have a conversation between the three of us and I would like to have your input first on how to pick the right startup to join because there's many startups out there, right? And you chose one very specific one. Like what is your thought process and mm-hmm. what would you suggest to other people? Yeah, I think um, I'm just scrolling through my LinkedIn trying to find a post so I don't say something completely contradictory. Um, I can link it to you. Give me a second. But I mean, there's, there's a few things. I think there's, first of all, for all the listeners, there's not one straight answer. Like these are the criteria that you should use to pick a startup. It varies. And I'll explain first how I picked where I am now and what some of those factors were. And they are also, yes, you got the post. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so first of all, I was, so I was in Switzerland, I was in Accenture. At Accenture, I, for the first time, got into Salesforce, like consulting Salesforce stuff, global digital transformations. Then I Went to London, did a master's, and then I thought, well, I quite enjoyed the Salesforce stuff. Let's see if there's a job at Salesforce. And I did that. That was quite fun. And then at Salesforce, like, okay, cool, but this is now a big company. I want to do, you know, more exciting, broader stuff, wear multiple hats. Well, obviously, that's a startup because that's what you hear, right? Do your startup. You can grow more. You can learn more. You'll do amazing things. And then I was kind of, okay, cool. Well, now how do I pick a startup? And as with anything... Um, in life, you kind of probably understand what you already know best. So I was looking at the B2B SaaS space and I was looking at startups. I was like into the AI sphere kind of within B2B SaaS. And I came across Clary through a podcast. I mean, this was quite random. I heard it. I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. It's like competitive uh, with Salesforce to some extent, quite exciting. And what struck me to find it interesting was, well, here's a founder who's talking confidently about what he's doing. So that's good. He's built three companies before. 
exited them all multiple times backed by Sequoia Capital. So he's an experienced founder and doing this with the same exact team. So the VP of products he knew from one of the previous companies. So there's like, okay, these guys know what they're doing. So that gave me a lot of confidence in that specific startup. Then I looked at the VCs. There's obviously Sequoia Capital, Bain Ventures, um, Madrona Ventures. Uh, I was like, oh, these are heavy hitters as well. So these investors know who they're investing in. And, and I looked at what stage the company was at as well with the latest round. And it was Series C, D. So it wasn't sort of at the early stages where you think, well, if I leave Salesforce now, they might not be around in six months' time. and have to go back to a big company maybe. So I was looking at some sense of longevity and, and stability, let's say, if that's even possible within the startup um, space. That was already a lot, I think, that helped me pick the right company. But then I was looking at, okay, I'm in the space. What's Clary doing? Is, is this a company that kind of has product market fit or not? And I was looking internally because they would compete. I was looking through all our database like, oh, yeah, we're actually losing deals against these guys. That's a good sign as well. So it's like VC backing, good exact team, been there, done that type, good product market fit. So that really helped. And then the latest round of funding just helped kind of instill the confidence in me that they are going the right direction. I was doing the usual that everybody should do for any kind of job, look at you know LinkedIn kind of growth and what kind of people join this company, Glassdoor reviews, kind of just get a feel for everything. And that all ticked the boxes. I was like, wow, that's amazing. And that's what I, what I was looking at. And then the final bit was, is it the right opportunity for me? And this is where it becomes most important for anybody. You kind of want to think, well, what do you want to look back on? You know, maybe in five years time, you want to look back and you say, I did X. And for me, X was, I built something from nothing. It was a company that did a great job in the US and you can build Europe with a team, build a team, you know, go from zero to, you know, X million revenue over, over several years. And this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with product. I wanted to work with marketing. I wanted to get closer to, to sales. And that's been amazing. And that's why I picked it, right? And then some other people leave wherever they are for other personal kind of opportunities because they want to emphasize something else in their career. But these were the things for me and the sort of four filters plus the opportunity. Yeah, I can, I can, I can much relate to that because, of course, um, I think one filter is absolutely crucial in also identifying um, high growth startups, but also identifying who you want to work for. And that is uh, the number of employees. So I think you can just be, uh, and I've been in both seats, right? Kind of I'm a founder myself, but also now working for a company. So I know how it feels like looking for the right people and also kind of looking for the right startups. And I think the most crucial thing that you need to understand is in which stage do you want to be at? You can you can be very, very successful in, in being the kind of the sixth employee at, at an organization, building up everything from scratch when it comes to actually aligning a company, getting product and sales more together, defining how you actually want to do go to market. Or you can look into companies that might be between 50 and 150 people or maybe 200 plus globally. And in each different stage, you have different people that more or less lead the company. Usually, um, of course, there are some founders uh, who are great CEOs when they are post-series and potentially post-IPO, but there are also some founders that just think that their responsibility should be given away to somebody who has managed teams before, who has scaled that before. I heard a, a podcast with Daniel Eck, the founder and CEO of Spotify, and he talked about the, the transition of actually moving away from the founder and engineering-centric mindset to a public company CEO mindset, which is completely different. Um, and I think that's something that also when you join a company, you need to rethink about mm -hmm. who you who do you want to be and who do you actually see, where do you see your strengths coming into actually building an organization and helping to scale the company into the next stage uh, of its lifetime more or less. So I can totally relate to that. And I don't know, Mike, if you have seen something very similar also being in YC of what Simeon mentioned, but I think that's something that I think we have we have seen across. Yeah, I think obviously the founders and the exec team are very important. Even if you join a later stage company where you're not directly working for them, right? If you if you are young and start a bit lower, right, you won't see the founder every day if it's a thousand person company or whatever. But it's still it's still not like a really like IPO company usually with a, th a thousand people, right? It's it's at the cusp. That's when I roughly joined Stripe back in the day to do some projects there. Obviously, there the team matters and see like looking at what kind of people they're hiring mm. and there is no necessarily better or worse it's often a question of fit if i look at these people 
and you have interviews, right? Then if you're in the process, but also if you look at them from the outside, do you think like you can spend a lot of time with these people? Are these people uh, like fitting what you think a good team should consist of? That's one part. And then one thing that many people kind of underestimate is it depends a bit on your role, but in your on your role, but what industry am I in and who am I dealing with on a daily basis? Right? Because the team is important, but let's let's use Semi as an example, right? He has to do with salespeople all the time because he is literally selling to sales organizations. Is that something that I want to mm -hmm. do? Is something that he probably asked himself, hopefully. And then if you're in a very different company, right, it's B2C and you're selling. I don't know, like in, in a meditation app, let's just use an ex as an example, you will probably have to talk to some customers, you want to do you want to talk to them, or if you want to do B2B in the oil industry, then you will be talking to a lot of people there. So really figuring out who you will deal with all the time, because it will affect your life on such a, such a big, in such a big way. It's not only the team, especially if you have a five-person team, right? Like like Semir's team, like it's like he spends probably more time or like a lot of time just talking with external people, and like they influence his life indirectly. So I think mm -hmm. that's one of the last things that many people underestimate: how much the actual industry and the external stakeholders that you're dealing with influence your job satisfaction, your life satisfaction, all of that around it. And the rest, I think, has already been said. It's in, in the end, it's a question of fit more than anything else, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with the points you guys raised. And yeah, I think, you know, the people you work with most closely, you know, you should surround yourself with them and see if, you, if you're fit. As, as with even the big companies, you know, people don't leave companies, they leave managers. Uh, that's a common saying that yeah. you've probably heard. And the same goes the other way around. Pick your manager, right? I knew the MD for EMEA. I knew the leader in the U.S. I would directly report, report into. And they were amazing people. And I thought, well, I know them. I talked to the CEO. And I could really imagine myself working for this company, working with those people. And then as you, as you kind of pick your industry, and that's, you know, for founders on how they recruit, if you want to get the most out of the employee, but also for employees who want to join a startup to get the most out of the experience, it's always driven by contribution, right? How much can you contribute or how much can an employee contribute? They almost look at it like for the sort of personal finance geeks on the calls, like compound interest. What do you get out of your past experience? And I was looking at, okay, I did some bachelor's project with some mm. Google cloud thing back in the day. <laughs> and that helped me to get into cloud CRM. It was like, okay, I used that previous thing to get into Salesforce at Accenture. And then I did more of that going into Salesforce directly. And now I'm in a startup that competes against Salesforce in some aspects And I can leverage, I was able to leverage my experience I had previously always in my next role and it compounds. And it's just great fun because I can contribute so much, but equally the company appreciates me across the board for, you know, helping and competes, helping with positioning, being able to explain things that's happening in the marketplace. And as a founder, you want to find employees that can do that, that can leverage previous experience as much as possible. But also if you're uh, somebody looking to jump ship somewhere into a startup, look at your space. If you're in B2B SaaS, you know, if you're happy in the B2B SaaS, just not happy in the company, you know, join a B2B SaaS company, you'll be able to leverage so much more. I would probably be useless at the B2C company. If you put me in a B2C position, I'd be very useless, I'm sure. <laughs> no, it's 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 good to hear hear honesty on that side, and I think uh, compound interest was something that Mike and I talked about in different episodes when it comes to mental models, but also using compound interest to analyze different sections of your life and also your professional life. One thing that I wanted to touch upon before we go into like the last kind of couple of uh, couple of uh, topics and questions is your LinkedIn game, um, because I I, mm. I of course we we know each other, we've met each other, and I know that you are actively doing stuff on LinkedIn when it comes to creating content. We have had Jeff Goldhelf on the on the show, which is, of course, the, the, the leaner UX uh, founder and, and more or less uh, ideator. And uh, of course, he talks a lot about creating content to build awareness around the topic that you are creating and, and building. Um, now you're working for Clary, of course, it's not just about selling Clary because that's not very authentic, but maybe you can address a bit how you approach LinkedIn uh, and how that has more or less helped you Uh, finding people to get in touch with and how the whole conversion uh, game actually happened for you. Because I think that's very interesting for people that um, are interested in creating content, but don't really know how it works. And I think you, you do a great job on that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for reading the posts. Sure. And I think 
there's several ways of how I approach it. Firstly, I mean, as you know, pure marketing, share what the company does, but that's not the interesting stuff. Nobody reads that, I'm sure. Um, but the other thing is I used to, every Friday morning, take 15 minutes and write into a Google Doc things I've learned, I enjoyed, I didn't enjoy this week, kind of like a little diary, more like a professional diary maybe, uh, you know, deals going well or, you know, great manager conversation I would have had. And I didn't find time for that when I joined Clary because I was so busy growing like crazy. And then I thought, well, I'm learning things now that maybe others will benefit from as well. And it's a short thing. It's a post. It's limited characters. I know how many LinkedIn has, just like a few hundreds. You can write like 10, 15 lines and that's it. And I thought, well, that's my weekly learning. Twice a week, I try to at least post something that I've learned either internally or externally and push it out there and see if people find it useful. And there's, you know, you can track how many views you get. So obviously people are looking at it and it's great. But it's also almost selfishly that I take the time to reflect on some of the things I've been doing in a given week or month. And so it's a bit of a selfish thing, but I try to share it in the, in the hope that somebody else benefits. And at the same time, you know, maybe somebody finds it interesting and thinks, well, this is an interesting company, interesting work people are doing and interesting, well, manager maybe there that I, you know, could be next year when I hire somebody. And that way, maybe somebody will feel like Clary could be a great place to join. So there's a bit multi, multi-purpose on, on that sense, in that sense. Um, and I, it helps you structure thoughts. I think that's the, that's also a key thing. You sometimes forget all the things you're doing in a startup in a given week, or you know any company for that matter can be you know, very exciting in all sorts of places. And reflecting on that helps. The best thing is if you know during any given week you post something around a very tough sales cycle and you're learning from that, and then the actual prospect likes the post, which also happens every now and then. It's kind of a funny parallel universe. Like there's a LinkedIn universe, like oh like the post but then really hard negotiation uh, during a call um so that happens too and that that's how i approach it it's, it's a learning reflection exercise in the hope that others will benefit as well and it's been it's been great yeah i mean sometimes people reach out either for career advice or because they want to join clary or because they want to get into pre-sales if they're in a different function and that, that's how i approach it just simply, and this was this year, and I'll think about it maybe next year if I do something different, but it's, it's helped me, yeah. It actually reflects fairly well how I think about writing stuff and then publishing it. Like, the first thing for me is also just writing down so that I myself remember, because I have no idea what I did five months ago, because there's just mm -hmm. so much stuff happening. And sometimes I'm just scrolling through my diary and see, like, okay, like, what did I think back then about this specific thing? And then I stumble over things that are really interesting to me now, despite me, like, having actually <laughs> written them down. So that's one part of it. And then also publishing it really helps on the one hand, because if you publish things, you need to, you usually polish it a bit more than if you just use it internally, right? You, you really think, okay, it doesn't make sense, like, if someone else reads it. Uh, so you, you probably think a bit more about it than if you just do it internally. So that, that's always helpful to me. And then sometimes opportunities arise. So I, I really like that. Maybe before we actually go to our standard closing questions, one quick uh, question about the most recent acquisition of Slack and uh, by Salesforce. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? Any, anything? Do you think it was a good choice? Do you think it wasn't? Uh, what do you think? I think it was an interesting choice. That's for sure <laughs> it was... A costly choice i did a linkedin post on that funny enough as well oh, and okay so what was your what was your conclusion well i think on one hand technically it'll be super hard to make it very tightly integrated right because you have so much already on the salesforce platform and and um, slack is pretty big as well already so i think it will be a challenge to bring the products together but that might not even be the goal necessarily it's but mainly a play i think against Microsoft because they are kind of stacking up for a big war, you know, Teams, Slack, CRM, like Salesforce and Dynamics, and probably some cloud play kind of on the, on the, on some sense with Azure. I think what is interesting is that, you know, Slack, I was looking at this, I was just looking at my posts now is, you know, they have had only not even a thousand customers that are paying more than a hundred grand a year. And when you think about who are the Slack users in my mind, and that's quite subjective, I'm thinking these are the you know, Slack free, maybe the paid plan, they probably use like a pipe drive or HubSpot CRM, also free, turned quite scrappy, 
lots of people using Slack for all sorts of things and not so much the people that will have like a big digital transformation footprint. And so I thought, well, you know, are these really the same customers? Does this really help you cross-sell as much? Yeah. I think the question is who will be the really big companies in like 10 years, right? Because maybe it's the ones who are using Slack now. But like, it's actually insane if you look at the numbers from Microsoft Teams. They have so many users and they are growing so quickly. And literally out of my own circle of friends or like of my acquaintances, maybe like one out of 100 uses Teams and it's 80% Slack. At least, I think. And if you also go, if you compare it to Zoom, yeah, somewhere they have those users. Yeah, it's 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 crazy, right? Yeah, I think it's crazy. And you know, there's a probably a long long term play. I mean, Slack is quite sticky. I think you know, with all the integrations and alerts and then channels, and I think stickiness in any SaaS business is excellent, even if they keep it separate for a long amount of time and just kind of cross sell in a very low touch way. Um, so yes, it's going to be interesting. I think what I, what I would have thought is they would buy something like a like a cloud player, like a pure cloud player, like Snowflake, obviously, which is now way way expensive. Um, but something like that that helps them get into the Asia compete kind of arena slowly and steadily. But maybe that's on the roadmap. Who knows? Yeah, we'll we'll see. Okay, Max, you want to transition to our standard closing questions? Sure. Yeah, we uh, we have a couple of kind of closing rapid fire Q and A's. Um, one related to, of course, serendipity, but in a way that um, more or less that is directed or related to books. Uh, so, do you have a a book that more or less inspired you that brought you serendipity? Maybe in this year, uh, since we are closing off 2020, um, do you read books? And if yes, has there been one that inspired you uh, this year? <laughs> Samia, can you actually read? Yeah. <laughs> Not everybody reads, right? So, uh, yeah, to kind of get those rumors out of the world, finally, is yes, I can read. Nice. Fantastic. And I do read books. Um, one book, I think, that comes to mind, I'm not sure if I read it this year or last year was Factfulness by Hans Rosling. I'm sure it kind of rings a bell. Just reading it. And I, I love this. I love this Gapminder kind of TED Talks before. And the way or why it's kind of related to serendipity is just we are in these sort of hyper kind of news cycles, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, like you're bombarded by bad news and, you know, governments and war. And this year, I mean, don't get me started, right? <laughs> and it was just, just a crazy year. And I think the book just highlighted how good things are as well. On a broader macro scale, the world is moving into a fantastic direction, even in the last 10 and 20 years. And I think that's what that highlights in very clear factual things. It's not some, you know, rah, rah, around, let's just all be friends and peaceful. It's actual facts and numbers that support that. And I just thought that's great. And you've got to just step out of this 24-7 news cycle of bad news and catastrophes and think about the bigger picture. So I really love that book, Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Yeah, I, I like his talks. I haven't read the book yet, but uh, I'll put it on my list. I'm actually just reading it. I really like the differentiation between developing countries and developed countries. Blew my mind. Also me living, um, me having lived in South Africa for a while where still everybody talks about developed and developing countries. So um, I really, that was a moment of serendipity for me as well. Um, another question related to that, um, what kind of habits, routines do you have that keep you more or less uh, in serendipitous uh, moments where you can focus on really being productive and really getting your work done, but also managing that with everything that relates to your private life. How do you, do you have certain habits that really help you in that regard? Yeah, I think some basic habits are, you know, having proper time to wind down in the evening. So you sleep better. There's otherwise, if I go to sleep straight after work, it's not great. It might be, you know, watching something on Netflix, reading, whatever the case might be. So doing that, super important. Never working on weekends. And I manage it 90% of the time, like 85% of the time. I mean, I do like read blog posts or, you know, go on LinkedIn, but I'm not actually slacking or building a demo or anything like that. I really don't. I work sometimes ridiculously hard during the week, but like on a Friday, I close the laptop and I log out of Slack. I log out of the Gmail of the company 
and I'm free until Monday morning. And I might do all sorts of startup-y things and read articles, but I'm not, I'm not working. And I think that space of giving you mind-free time to just think about other stuff and get distracted by you know, personal life, the gym, all these sorts of things, it just helps. The ref- being refreshed. Even if I do a lot of things on the weekend as well, and maybe I'm physically still kind of exhausted, you know, you go for a long hike or something like that. But coming back with a mental refresh is super valuable. So I try to make really black and white cuts with work and not work on the weekend. And then during the week, you know, I, I enjoy working. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Actually, like some time ago at, at my company, we decided to take Sundays off. And it has actually increased overall productivity by a lot. And you really know it's not only productivity, also happiness, which is also a thing apparently, uh, even for founders. Mm-hmm. But it it really it's really really helpful just to block free time, and you are overall like if you look at the month or the year, just progressing so much quicker. I, I think that's a it's a good one, and yeah, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Absolutely, and just maybe on that, I think one 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 thing is which I realized this year is working for an American company. And I'm currently actually sitting in Switzerland with uh, where, where my family is as well. But it's having that time in the morning, that's a bit quiet focused work. I think it's not necessarily a habit or so, but I enjoy having clear blocks of time. As you mentioned, Mike, this is focused work time. There's like customer meetings and in the evening we have maybe some you know company calls. And that's been really good as well, having kind of a clear differentiation between those. So you kind of reduce the switching costs, the mental switching costs. So I think that's been really good. Yeah, I, I like that. I actually switched to like all of my non-super urgent calls. I only have on two days of the week. Yeah. And then it's literally 16 calls in a row, like on both days. It's just call, 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 call. And on the other days, like it's super free. I can just do focused work. Sometimes I have, like if it's a very important call, I'll obviously do it no matter what. But just having these free days to just get shit done. And then these days where it's just call, 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 call. Uh, that, that, that really, like at least right now, I really like that rhythm. Yeah, I just got reminded again a couple of days ago on the makers versus uh, makers versus manager schedule blog article by Paul Graham. Uh, everybody has not read it. Uh, it's absolutely incredible, and I think it summarizes it very well on how you need to manage your calendar if you want to have more time to think and more time to be creative. Yeah. Um, but all in all, um, Samir, we are at the at the at the finish line. Um, from a time perspective, I think we could have talked much, much longer about different startup trends and your perspectives on um, sales and also building building clear in Europe. So uh, we much appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, for the great conversation. Um, hope to have you back someday. Uh, but until then, um, all the success for, for rolling out in Europe and uh, let us know how it works. Perfect. Max, Mike, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you.